the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined by the two other hosts, Jason Reed and Lee Johnson. And this episode, we're talking about horror. But before we get into the scary bits, as usual, I'm going to ask for your drink orders and whether you're ranting or raving. Lee, let's start with you. Well, speaking of horror, I'm going to be ordering an old-fashioned today because I am currently living out the last 48 hours of my 40s. So I might as well start drinking old people drinks before I turn 50. <laughs> and today I am ranting, as old people do, about Borgs. I mentioned this in a previous episode already, but Borgs are the new drinking trend of Gen Z. And, you know, Gen Z, not to be outdone by their Tide Pod eating predecessors, <laughs> have really come up with something crazy here. So... Borg stands for Blackout Rage Gallon. And basically what it is, is it's a jug that they fill halfway with water, halfway with liquor. Let me repeat that, a half gallon of liquor. And then they put Kool-Aid and liquid IV or some kind of hangover cure in it. And this is what they drink. And I mean, I don't know, like, I, whatever, I'm Gen Z, we didn't wear seatbelts, but I mean, come on, this can't be safe. So anyway. <laughs> All right, Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm just going to have an Allagash White because it goes so well with fries and I've been eating a lot of fries. And I'm going to rant about Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Apparently, his soft cover of Beyond Order, and that's a horrifying name of a title of a book anyways, has come out recently, and he blurbed it with negative reviews with the negative words cut out. Oh. <laughs> that's brilliant. Someone wrote the book was full of hokey wisdom. It just appears the book is full of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean... Someone else doing this, I might understand, but given that Jordan Peterson presents himself in all of his tweedy nature as being a serious intellectual who wants to debate, this kind of just seems like trolling to me. And second of all, for someone who's so much against postmodernism, he's doing a two-bit Derrida routine. <laughs> Come on, you got to at least credit. I mean, you'd expect this from someone who just read Derrida's essays on Austin. You'd like it then, but coming from him, it's just bad form. So it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest for this week, Joe Isaacson, the author of Stepford Daughters, Weapons for Feminists and Contemporary Horror, and the founding co-editor of Blindfield, a journal of cultural criticism, where you can find great essays on the politics of horror. So, Joe, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, I'll have a gin buck, Mm. which I've gotten good at making lately, so that's exciting. (laughs) And I'm going to rave about Chuck Tingle's turn to horror fiction. He you might know as an erotic comedic writer of such titles as My Gender Fluid Butt is Pounced by This Handsome Pterodactyl Space Accountant. <laughs> a classic. <laughs> classic. For years I've been reading his titles, but not really his full works. But he's in the last year or so been writing horror fiction. I read his novella called Straight, and it's kind of like The Purge 
where once a year, straight people go crazy and try to kill gay people. And there's actually a vaccine for it, but a lot of them don't take it and they just roll with it. But he does it in a very loving, humorous, affirming way. He has a beautiful tone to his horror fiction, even though it is truly horror. And I'm just starting Camp Damascus right now, which is a horror about a gay conversion camp, which you would think there'd be a lot of, but there's not so much. And he says that he was liberated to write about horror by Jordan Peele. So suitable for today. Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Today, I'm going to have a Metropolitan Crankshaft. And Dude, you've drunk that like five times this season. Okay. We're only on episode four. All right. <laughs> Hello, Fireball and Diet Coke. <laughs> it's my summertime go-to beer. And we're in the dying days of summer here. Today, I am going to rant about the North Carolina State Legislature. <laughs> Within the past days as we're recording this, the legislature has just overridden the vetoes of the Democratic governor of a whole host of LGBTQ-phobic bills, one banning trans women and trans girls from competing on women's athletic teams, banning gender-affirming medical care for trans youth, and a whole host of other goodies. So I'm just going to say, fuck you, North Carolina State Legislature. Mm. So Jason, I know today we're talking about horror. How are we going to approach this? So for a long time, or at least it seemed, horror films were considered to be beneath serious scrutiny. The politics of such films were all too apparent and the violence brought to bear on women's bodies in countless slasher films. The racial politics were not much better. The cliché of the black character dying first exists for a reason. Gradually, however, this changed, first with such groundbreaking critical studies as Carol Glover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws and Robin Wood's Introduction to American Horror Film. But in the past few years, the films have also changed with the rise of so-called elevated horror most notably, Jordan Peele has made three films dealing with our social demons, Get Out, Us, and Nope. So here to talk with us about horror, the films of Jordan Peele, and how horror can be used to develop our critical understandings of capitalism, racism, and patriarchy is Joe Isaacson, author of Stepford Daughters. So, Joe, in your book, you state that horror films help us understand that the exploitation of social reproduction makes the capitalist system possible. For the benefit of our listeners, it might be useful to first talk about social reproduction theory and specifically how it makes it possible to overcome the dualism between Marxism and feminism, a dualism which in terms of horror films is manifest in the interpretive divide of reading films either for their class politics or for their gender politics. Yeah, so... To think about social reproduction theory, we can think about it in terms of feminism or gender is a activity rather than an identity. It's what you do on some level. Since the origin of capitalism, there's been a separation of spheres of labor, productive labor that's done at the point of production, the factory, the typical place that you think of labor being done, and reproductive labor that has been done often in the household, re 
recreating the public worker every day and sending often him off to work with the things that he needs. And this labor has always been gendered. So we always think of real labor being masculine and reproductive labor being feminine. And it's become entwined that because it's feminine, it's degraded, it's less valuable, it's more naturalized. And in some cases, it's not really even considered labor. And it pays less. And it pays less, right? And or that's, sometimes not at all. And sometimes not at all. Yeah. And that's the point of Stepford Daughters. We had in the 70s horror movies like The Stepford Wives that imagined the horror of reproductive labor through the figure of the housewife who's turned into this robot drone who only lives to service her husband. And clearly, there's been an awakening with second wave feminism that that kind of labor has been exploited, unpaid, and not considered labor. And then some people might make the case, well, oh, now women are in the workplace, you know, getting wages. And so we're in this post-feminist moment where that reproductive labor somehow has been taken care of. But just like you guys are intimating, that same qualities of work that have been brought and those capacities that have been brought into the workplace are undervalued, underpaid, seen as less than, seen as natural. And they accompany a whole host of rollbacks with post-Fordism of the lack of unionization. You know, there's a kind of pushback in second wave feminism against the family wage where a male breadwinner would support the whole household. But replacing that is not like a woman can now support a household. Even two people mostly cannot support a household. So Betty Friedan's fantasy with the feminine mystique that once we get out of the household and move into the workplace, it's going to be cool for women. You know, actually, there were some protections under Fordism where some of that was taken care of by the state that has all really been externalized by the state and thrown back on people to just take care of as they can. And to the extent that white middle class women don't have to do it anymore, it's been displaced onto poor women of color doing that socially reproductive labor. So all of this is very horrible, which is horror. And it's also very repressed, which is what horror is about, is what is repressed, what isn't spoken, what is naturalized. So that is the idea that my book came around of thinking about the areas in which that social reproductive labor is most repressed and how horror movies can make it visible and help us talk about it and think about it. Your point about the centrality of this unwaged and therefore unpaid labor labor to capitalism. And so the necessity of social reproduction reminds me a lot of the argument that Silvia Federici makes in Caliban and the Witch, namely that in Capital Marx says there is the seemingly great mystery that we go from a feudal society and then all of a sudden some people have capital. And where did that capital come from? And this is the so-called original accumulation. Sometimes it's called primitive. I think that's a bad translation. But Marx points out that there's a moral story that capitalism grabs onto. Namely, there were people with really strong wills who were able to save their money. You know, they were very careful and they weren't living beyond their means. And so slowly over time, they accumulated this capital and then saving and so on becomes a moral value. And off we go. And Silvia Federici points out that the original accumulation 
is in fact capturing this kind of labor that women do in social reproduction, not just feeding the male worker so he can go back to the factory and then producing children and raising them so they could enter the factory, but also things like enclosing the commons in which women used to have kitchen gardens and provide food and sustenance for their family. The closing of this now takes away from women the original accumulation they had in the form of working the land and so on. And so I really think it's important to highlight the absolute centrality of this kind of unwaged and therefore unpaid labor within capitalism. Yeah. And isn't it fascinating that the origin story, for my project at least, is a horror story. It's the creation of witches, right, mm. is what <laughs> Caliban and the witch talks about. And the way that the advent of capitalism and the enclosure of the commons was able to happen in Federici's narrative is partially by disciplining women to make sure they would assume that reproductive role and to label any women who did not, especially people like midwives that were trying to control biological reproduction, but also any woman who was in excess of the roles that were determined for them by labeling them witches and making them monsters. So there's been this horror monstrosity that's feminized through the entire range of capitalism and stages that is meant to discipline women into that role and Mm. to placate men because that was the other thing is how are we going to get male workers to go into the factory right and the way to kind of bribe them to do that to give up the more egalitarian and more autonomous life of the enclosures without too much of a fight is to offer them a female servant to do that Mm. reproductive labor and we can see this in what Jason talks about negative solidarity now like that seemed like a great deal for men and that they wanted to rest on that patriarchal position, it also creates a reserve army of labor that is there to discipline men as well. You know, So nobody wins and it creates a division where there's no solidarity between men and women mm. because there's this hierarchy created between them. So that's the sort of horror story in Caliban and the Witch that affirms these ideas about reproductive labor. There's an interesting connection between social reduction theory and horror in general as a genre because so much horror involves the house. The real twist comes when we find out that the threat is not coming from outside the house, but is already in some sense inside the house as well. (laughs) And I think that ties in with the way in which social reduction theory points out that capitalism is already in the house. The house is not this domestic respite from the demands of the capitalist world. It is a functioning part of it and how it functions is by, in some sense, concealing its role, right? Making Mm. the work in the house appear to be not work, but appear to be efforts of love and so on. So, you know, when a stranger calls, right, the capitalism's coming from inside the house. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much more terrible in some ways. I mean, Marx talks about the hidden abode of production, but social reproduction feminists talk about the hiddener abode of reproduction, Mm. where you are a monster in some ways if you protest. Like if you're doing productive labor, you can gather collectively and protest. But if you're isolated in your home doing this reproductive labor, you can't strike from mothering or you're a monster. That's what a monster is. You can't strike from care or love the deepest things that you're meant to identify with. You're 
abjecting or negating. So it's a real horror situation that it is inside the house and that it's so deeply internalized that it's hard to extract yourself from that kind of reproductive labor without turning into what all of society thinks of as a monster. And I have a chapter called It's Coming from Inside the House that makes that case. And I mean, you all have had Sophie on here who talks about family abolition of the family as this thing that we're supposed to turn to for all our love and care and nurturing, but that for many people can be a source of terror and that it's very taboo to talk about. But also, again, thinking about how horror shows that even with women working outside the house and maybe not living in conventional nuclear family situations, they're still having to do all that work and love and care and reproduction inside the house, perhaps with less resources, and then also take those qualities of caring and nurturing that they've developed and work at a low-wage workplace. And there's actually, you know, movies like The Babadook have characters who are somehow not liberated from having to do all the hard work of reproductive labor inside the house and outside the house. Joe, I know the guys are going to make fun of me for this because I do tend to ask definitional questions right at the top (laughs) of these conversations, but it would help me a lot if you could say something about what you mean by the term horror as a genre of film or of literature or whatever, because obviously I can think of lots of film and literary stories about horrible things or people or conditions that I wouldn't call horror. So what is it about the genre that is different than just a story about something horrible? I'm really capacious with what I call horror often. Seem to fall in line a lot with this theorist Robin Wood, who's a queer Marxist horror critic from the 70s. And, you know, he just broadly talks about horror as a genre that deals with the repressed and makes it manifest through irrealist or supernatural monsters or phenomena that we don't necessarily consider realistic, but is actually a deeper realism about what we repress in what goes against this agreement about what is normal and acceptable. The films that I gravitate towards in horror are films that are broadly and some level allegorical in that they have a monster or a supernatural aspect of them that is something that when we try to talk about it in a more realist context, we can't really convey all the pressures and overdeterminedness that's layered onto it. But when we find these fantastic ways of having somebody encounter it, we can delve into its richness. And I don't think that that is all heaped onto prestige horror. It goes across the genre. I guess most of the movies I talk about could be categorized that way, but there's plenty of very raw horror that does that work as well. And plenty of what's called prestige horror that I don't think does that work. You use the word monster often, and many people have written about monsters and monstrosity and so on, and it is a central part of your book as well. But when I think about the etymology of this, you know, so the Latin word monstrare means to point to or to expose, it suddenly occurs to me that the presence of something like a monster in the, let's say, common everyday usage, like something that's partly human but not entirely human or partly a dolphin but not entirely a dolphin or whatever – 
also has this odd quality of pointing out something that otherwise might not be seen. Is this the kind of realism that you're finding in these horror movies? Definitely, yeah. And again, it converges with this coming from inside the house or if something like us, mm. you know, the monsters are just us tweaked a little bit. So we can get also into Freud's idea of the uncanny. It's the Heimlich. It's the thing that's home, but also hidden, right? Mm. In 50s horror films, we have these things that are the outside, the communist, the racial Mm. other. Mm. And I think horror films now are canny about understanding that it's really what we're not saying about our own national history, what we're not saying about the inequalities in our society, what we're not saying about what our privileges rest upon that will show to Monstra, show us. Jeffrey Cohn has a seven theses on monsters where he talks about it's this border creature that always shows the outline of what can and can't be said. And it's always showing the threat of the porousness of those boundaries. And so I think when we look deeply at any of the monsters, including in Jordan Peele's work, you know, like in Get Out, the way that we can imagine the Southern racist horrors down out there, but in liberal Obama world, you know, Mm -hmm. we can't quite imagine what those horrors are, but it shows the porousness of those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's this famous story that's probably apocryphal of Toby Hopper? Hooper? Hooper, yes. And Steven Spielberg getting in an argument on the set of Poltergeist. Spielberg was producing, Hooper was directing, and Hooper was like, it'd be scarier if, because like, if you've seen Poltergeist, where the whole thing hinges on the house being built on a cemetery and the body's not Spoiler being Spoiler alert. <laughs> and, As in every other horror movie. Right. Carolina, run away from the lot. <laughs> and Hooper thought it'd be better if the father somehow knew that and was implicated in it. And Steven Spielberg wanted it to be a surprise. Like you mentioned the 50s, right? Is the monster outside or is the monster inside? That also maps on political discussions. You know, we talked about this. We had Sophie Lewis on about the family, like people who can only imagine threats to children coming from the outside and people who point out that now there's a lot of violence within the family, too. And how this more reassuring horror, which is like the monsters are there, they're far away. Come inside the house, protect yourself, board the windows. And the more frightening story where, you know, you board your windows and you find out, oh, my God, it's the person closest to you. You most have to fear kind of lines mm-hmm. into, I think, a more critical perspective that points to the fact that the very institutions that we've been told to trust are marked by violence and exclusion and everything else. And that's why I think horror has a natural connection with social criticism. Definitely. And, you know, that story of Poltergeist is so fascinating because, I mean, I love Toby Hooper and I am skeptical about Spielberg. And you can tell it's a mishmashed thing. You have a point where the father, you know, he's an abusive father, right? And he's reading like Reagan at a certain point while he's smoking pot. It's very strange. And so he's supposed to be this figure that shows this patriarchal logic that has seeped into the house. And then Spielberg's sentimentality about the family, he wouldn't let certain things be said. And so it just creates this mishmash in the movie. And I think even movies that are reactionary and create that fear of the other. I mean, one of my points in the book is that as a feminist anti-capitalist, I want to take the critical lens for ourselves and think about ways to read these films 
whether they're made politically like Jordan Peele or whether they're reactionary, to analyze structures of oppression and to understand how the world works. You know, especially social reproduction helps us understand the gendered, patriarchal, racialized world we live in. And so that can be done against the grain as well to hopefully create a common language around how to look at culture and to talk about it. You know, I teach at a community college. I'm trying to bridge academia and more popular realms to start having those discussions. And if you read just short film reviews in the news, you don't get those rich political discussions around popular culture. So either way, we can look at how these boundaries are created by culture. It's occurring to me now that with all of the true crime material out there that tell straightforwardly horrible stories about straightforwardly horrible, monstrous people that we're not really horrified by them. And they don't seem to have this didactic dimension that seems to me that you're implying that horror has. Is it partially the work of uncovering, of cathecting, of, you know, whatever it is that is necessary for horror to have this enlightening effect that just looking at the world and seeing that it's horrible doesn't have? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, when Robin Wood talks about it, he talks about how if you see a social issue film or something, you can't necessarily talk as deeply about these other subjects because they're so taboo, they're so repressed, and they frighten us to even think about them. And if you read Marx or Freud, you see how that work happens in our consciousness. But because these films are escapist, because they're low culture or genre, they can creep past the censors and there can be a way in which we can face it obliquely. Whereas if it's just in our face in this way, I think we roll back like with true crime. I'm not a big follower of that stuff, but all the narratives about crime in our culture that are so fearful and disciplinary probably are always just right there on the surface with the true crime. So it's hard to get around those common sense ideas about how we should be fearful of criminals and individualist criminals and to ignore the structural violence of the state, for instance. But I think horror can help us rethink even the concept of violence because it's not told in these newspaper narratives. It's told in this other language of genre that allows different discourses around violence. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. I am a big fan of true crime (laughs) and my friend was too, but we were just talking about how it doesn't seem that anybody really learns anything from those stories except for how to pick out the perpetrator in the next story. You know, it's like, oh, it's definitely the husband. It's definitely the neighbor or whatever. But nobody ever says, wait a minute, maybe it's my husband. Maybe it's my neighbor. <laughs> you know, Maybe it's me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. 
can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at www.hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. You know, we decided to focus our discussion a little bit, and because some of my co-hosts, who won't be named, are scaredy cats. Guilty. Guilty. Very generous to do this with us. <laughs> to focus on Jordan Peele films, I guess the place to start is Get Out. So maybe, has anyone not seen Get Out? We'll offer a brief summary of Get Out to help our listeners. And so- are you going to spoil it, Jason? Should we warn our listeners? Yes. We'll spoil all the Jordan Peele films. So if you haven't seen them, stop the podcast now, watch all three of them, and then resume listening. <laughs> so Get Out is a story about Rose Armitage, who brings her boyfriend, Chris, who's black, back home to meet the family for the first time. And one of the things I love about the film is you're always aware there's some kind of horror going on, but it's kind of unclear what it is is like things seem off from the mm-hmm. get-go right. even though as we were talking about earlier the families seem very welcoming in a very cringe sort of way right i voted for obama twice <laughs> i would have voted for him three times <laughs> yes but the servants at the house seem odd in some way they're all black as well and eventually we learn here's the big spoiler that Chris is being brought home to be turned into the body that would become the support for a white person's brain that would go on living in his body in a way to cheat death. They figured out how to use people who in some sense can be disappeared without too much notice and continue living on in a black body. And there are all kinds of things go on with that figure of the sunken place and about bodies and minds. But I guess one of the things I think is interesting is your interpretation of the film, Joe, where you focus on the figure of the servants. Yeah, I mean, a ton has been written about the film, but less has been written about the film's most uncanny characters, which are Georgina, Walter, and Andre. So Georgina's the maid, Walter's the groundskeeper, and Andre's kind of like a sex slave, basically, and a house husband. Mm. And these are the characters that have already gone through what's called the coagula procedure that has buried these Black people in their own bodies, and all they can do is look out as white people steer them around and control their every move. And for these characters, it reserved all the real horror tropes. The jump scares are all with them, the canted angles, the swelling horror music, reflections and refractions, all these real genre things are really only when they are on screen that those happen. Even Chris is shot in a realistic vein. They are also characters who are in the most repressed position in a regime of social reproduction and labor in that they're working inside white people's homes. They're never off. They have to basically pretend like they're part of the family. And on some level, the most realistic way to show them is that their bodies are snatched Mm -hmm. and their minds are snatched by this white family. And there's this scene that is just amazing. I wrote about it twice. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Where Georgina, you know, she's being controlled by the matriarch in the family, basically has no power. But Chris is starting to realize like he's got to get out of there. He goes for his phone to call his friend and it's been unplugged and he sees that Georgina has unplugged it. And so she comes to apologize 
And she is acting in this incredibly uncanny way. She's talking with the cadences and the anachronistic expressions of an old white lady. She's moving in these non-naturalistic ways and making this very false Pollyanna apology. And then Chris says to her, it's fine, I get nervous when I'm always around white people. And that triggers the inner woman inside to break through and suddenly have this startle of emotion. And so you can see the two people warring within this one body. Mm. And I just can't imagine another genre where you could have such a poignant display of what it's like to be buried in your own life. And you think of like workers from the Philippines who go to take care of people in Singapore and you hear these horror stories of women who are locked in the house all day and thrown out the window or starved or not allowed to see their children for years on end. How do we even convey that kind of horror except through monstrosity? And so I think it's a really canny way of looking at that labor. In the past couple of years, there's been a ton of films about the servant, which is weird because on some level, the servant seems kind of anachronistic. I mean, even Marx and his criticism of capital often considered like servants as a kind of thing that was on the way out, right. right? Replaced by wage labor. But one of the things I think has made the servant relevant is that even for people who are not doing directly that kind of work inside a home, a lot of forms of labor involve what Hochschild called emotional labor, where you're doing something, but also your self-presentation while you're doing that is part of the labor as well. And this more intense form of alienation where you're alienated even from how you express yourself and how you communicate. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things in that scene you talk about is how the actress playing Georgina, after Chris says, I get nervous from white people, she says no. And she says no repeatedly, but the tone of the no shifts, eventually becomes the muffled scream from within. First it's the no of the person who's taken over the body, but then eventually it sounds like you finally hear the voice of the body, but it's so deep down in the sunken place, the place where you can only watch what you're doing. I mean, it has resonances with Du Bois's idea of double consciousness, of yeah. sort of seeing things from detachment, but it also has resonances with a certain kind of alienation where you can't even identify with the way you're acting and interacting mm -hmm. with people, not just what you're doing, but how you're even interacting with people. Yeah, and I have a chapter called The Telltale Managed Heart, which is thinking about this emotional labor that Hochschild's talks about is she saw it in stewardesses in the 80s. Their jobs are not to really just walk up and down the aisle of a plane, but to really deeply act these emotional fantasies of their customers. And they're ingrained so much with it that when they go home, they don't really know who they are anymore if they're doing it right. So in some ways, their bodies have been snatched. They've been colonized by this emotional labor. And I think horror has gotten really canny about the female smile as a kind of horror mm -hmm. trope. I mm -hmm. mean, Betty Gabriel does it really well in that scene. There's Pearl recently. It ends with this woman who's just done the most horrific things in an apron with a smile that lasts over a minute, you know, that mm -hmm. really gets mm -hmm. more and more horrific. There's just a horror film called Smile that's about women who go crazy or there's men too. And that's the other thing about effective labor is that it's not just women. It's always feminized, but it's not just women, right? Mm -hmm. And get out too. Men and women 
women are both doing reproductive labor, but it's still reliant on feminized qualities to add to its degradation, give it its hierarchical place. So most of us are feminized laborers, whatever our chosen or biological gender is. So yeah, I think Georgina's smile in that is loaded with all that overdeterminedness of effective labor and how it works right now. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is how much Peel was influenced by the Stepford Wives. He says that he builds on it. And what Jason was talking about of Georgina's no and the saying over no, 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 until she gets it right and she's back in character, that goes along with the glitching mm. done both in Stepford Wives and in this where a character becomes a perfect servant or a perfect housewife, but sometimes they malfunction and they can't do it anymore. And there's another scene in Get Out where Georgina, she's pouring iced tea and she just keeps going and liquid overruns. And I thought about that in line with what Maria Vishmit calls reproductive realism. This kind of realism that doesn't just show women who are maids who are positive and who are strong characters that we can emulate and admire, but rather uses negation to show the structural problems with this work and the horror of this kind of work. So in my reading of this, that negation is actually utopian and it really shows that you can't just be one lean-in person who gets out of this drudgery. It has to be a social project to change the nature of this work to make it better by showing the structural problems with this kind of labor. Yeah, on that point, I think a lot of people have pointed out that Jordan Peele's films are not so much about the monsters, but what made the monsters monstrous. And that's always going to be a kind of social criticism, a kind of reference back to socially reproductive labor. I'm wondering what in particular you think makes him so good at this. And maybe even if there are other filmmakers that come to mind, horror films that come to mind, where you see the same thing. I mean, he is just such a lover of the genre. He's seen everything. And I think that being a Black man who is socially aware and understanding that inherent in this whole history of horror, which often wasn't very politically attuned, it's one thing if you're very socially aware and you make a horror film, but it doesn't engage deeply with the tropes and the language and the genre history. But like, Every moment of every film is just filled with these Easter eggs. You guys aren't horror fans. I mean, I hope you enjoyed it anyway, right? Oh, yeah. It doesn't rely <laughs> on those. But it also has this, this rich engagement with the genre that I think, like I was saying, with the Stepford Wives of being in dialogue. And that, that shows a connection of Black horror and gender horror that doesn't have to be explained in some didactic way. It's just there in the meat of the trope and the moves that he's making but also criticizing them. And I think there's been a trend of this with Lovecraft Country and this kind of thing of looking at the problems and the failures. One thing that I don't know if he was completely engaging with, but Stepford Wives is a pretty problematic second wave feminist horror film in that there's one point where before the wives are turned into robots, they're discussing how they planned to be free women in their situation. And it was by getting maids and their mean patriarchal husbands wouldn't let them have maids. Mm -hmm. They are basically just placing their own oppression onto women of color. So this not only engages and shows the connections, I think, with these older parts of the genre, and he's curated whole festivals of social horror but he also comments on it in his creation of these films. So 
He's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> it also occurs to me that he, and he's been quite explicit about this, brings together his interest in comedy with his interest in horror. And comedy also shares a certain ability to be more realist than any other kind of realism because it has a way of getting to us before our sensors get up and know what's going on. And I think that's where he also is a real genius. That also has this element of uncanniness that you've been talking about because when I think about Get Out, that's an example that I think does this most, that you're laughing at the beginning at some points, but by the end of the movie, now you're wondering why you were laughing because the truth turns out not to be so funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he does have a ton of really funny humor in yeah. all of those mm -hmm. films, and he always has a character who's doing comedy throughout, like Rod in Get Out or the husband in Us, Gabe. And I think in that way, he's also engaging with black cinema and all these different genres. And I do think horror and comedy are really complementary. Yeah. I didn't know Key and Peele before he started making horror movies, but going back and seeing some of the horror sketches that they did mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. hilarious, you know, so it's sort of a perfect fusion. Like there's this one where he's walking through a white neighborhood, this black guy in a hoodie and everybody's converging on him. And finally, he just pulls up the hoodie and it's the silhouette of a white face on the side of the hoodie. And then everybody <laughs> just like starts greeting him in this really <laughs> friendly. But anyway, so I think those genres do come together really well. And the family all gets in the car and the daughter wants to drive and she's, you know, maybe 14 or so. And when they're having an argument about this, she says, well, I have the highest kill count. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Right. And they're meta. Again, not only is he engaging with the history of horror, but in that case, yeah, having the characters know what genre they're in right. and have a kind of sense of humor about it is really, I think, a generous thing to do with the audience and kind of connecting, not talking at them, but with them in that way. Mm -hmm. And I do remember going to see those movies in theaters was so much fun because the audiences were just so engaged with the film. Clinky glasses and challenging ideas is kind of our thing here at Hotel Bar Sessions, but both the drinks and the server space cost money. You can help keep this podcast independent and ad-free by signing up to be a Hotel Bar Sessions patron at patreon.com backslash hotelbarsessions. For less than the cost of a mild night of drinking per month, you'll be helping to defray the many costs of our podcast and saving us from having to start our own cult. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several of them, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support this podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. As always, we appreciate your listening, and especially your helping us to keep pouring wisdom one conversation at a time. So we want to talk about all of Peel's films, and it's kind of tough because you could do a whole episode more on each film. But moving to the second film, Us... One of the things you wrote about, and this was actually in Commune, about the role Santa Cruz plays, location plays in us. Yeah, it was amazing because I was obsessed, obviously, with Get Out. And then there came a call for 
extras in a movie Jordan Peele was going to make in Santa Cruz. So actually, you know, my partner ended up being an extra and I sadly had to work that day, <laughs> but, but I got the part. But basically, as somebody who I've been doing a lot of mutual aid work in Santa Cruz and just living here for a long time, it's a place that's very heavenly. It's a tourist town. It's a beautiful town. It, it seems very woke. It seems very liberal, but it's the most expensive place to live in the U.S. Mm. And when you go to school there, you are so impoverished. Or if you try to work a service job, you usually can't live in Santa Cruz proper. You have to live far away. Mm. It's adjacent to Silicon Valley. And some of the oppressive policing forms that come out of there are kind of tested in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of so-called post-racial policing techniques that are very racialized. And so that kind of formation in the film itself of the tethered and the underground and this whole dependency on oppressing people while keeping them invisible in order to live this beautiful sun-drenched life really aligns with the politics of Santa Cruz itself, which I think is very emblematic of places that were the heart of hippie discourse of freedom and cultural abundance and feminism and anti-racism have become these ideological touch points for actually reworking capitalist discourse to make it sound egalitarian while being even more stratified and more hierarchical and more economically especially oppressive. So I got in trouble by saying Santa Cruz was so key to understand capitalism. But in the film, I was surprised because Peel changes Alexa to Ophelia. He changes (laughs) names of things, but he has Santa Cruz like all the time, people chanting it, showing signs like he wants Mm -hmm. you to know. It also has a horror history. The Lost Boys was film there, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. He cites The Lost Boys a little bit in the mm-hmm. opening scene. So there's that acknowledgement too. But I can't help but think he understands the fake egalitarianism, especially with the Tim Heidecker character too and Elizabeth Moth's their typical seemingly laid back but really rich asshole kind of character. <laughs> yeah, I'm, one of the I like about us on that level is that I kind of read us to be about class in some sense. It's about the division between us and the tethered. Like some of us get to live in the sunlight, some of us live underground, and those who live underground are struggling to be in sunlight, and we look down upon them for everything they try to do to maintain their existence. They're horrifying, and all they're trying to do is just have some of what we have. But one of the things I like about the Santa Cruz location is that the use of the boardwalk, I mean, I feel like there are a few places left in American society where people of different classes come together. In fact, a lot of American society is built on keeping that from happening. But places like amusement parks, fairs, etc. are kind of a place where people see how other people live. And the scene when the person who plays the young Adelaide slash Red is walking through the boardwalk and sees all these people and is fascinated and horrified by what everyone around her is doing. And of course, that's intercut with people in the underground doing the same thing. And the film often uses you know the same gestures meaning different things in different places. Yeah, definitely. And I wrote about Lupita Nyong'o's a performance in that film because she has to play two different characters that are so distinct. I might have been stretching it a little bit, but I really saw a kind of Brechtian use of gesture in that she, in her body, shows how people are made into animals when they're kept underground and she can't use fluid humanist movements. She's either kind of scuttling or rigidly still. And she draws 
draws attention to this theme that if you decontextualize the same behavior in a sort of degraded area, it takes on a totally different meaning. And I think her performance style is both showing that degradation, but also nobility, right? She's very poised and calm and assured about what she's doing. So the way that that violence can also be seen as a form of revolt. I really like this essay that came out in this collection after Marx called Screening Insurrection by Mark Stephen, where he talks about us as this understanding of surplus populations and the riot and spontaneous violence as the new form of politically committed cinema that we have a hard time recognizing as politically committed cinema because we think of it in these older terms of Eisensteinian montage and the white proletarian workers, but there's all these films right now that are coming out that show this seemingly chaotic racialized violence, but that we can read in relation to forms of insurrection that we see in the world and that are imagining both their possibilities and their problems, you know, in this way. What I appreciate about us is the way in which it displays, again, points out Monstrare, the fact that the above ground society both needs and relies on and also needs to hide and shove away the underground group. It is really only the character of the girl who breaks that logic, although we don't know that until almost at the end of the film, that she has really broken that logic. And I mean, to spoil it all the way, there's a kind of replacement where the underground comes above ground and takes the place of her opposite, thereby breaking this dependency. And I don't want to make it more extreme, but there's a moment of resistance in her character that I found, given the horror of the rest of the movie, kind of warm. Mm. When you go back and look at it, her behavior throughout the entire thing is she understands what the family wants. Nobody else gets it. And there is, in a way, an additional violence to not knowing that your own survival is dependent on this mirror world that you're exploiting. And as soon as she gets to Santa Cruz, she knows she's vulnerable because she knows what she's done, basically to spoil all the way, you know. So that actually creates a weird tenderness. Like Zora kills off her double Umbre, the teenage girl. She goes out into the forest and holds her hand while she dies and looks her in the eyes and is there for her, you know. So it creates a weird like you're saying, kind of empathy that I didn't really think about till yeah. I looked at it again recently. So I, I think you're right. I'd like to return to this comment that you made about how the tethered, because they live underground, are reduced to animals. I think we also see this reckoning with the animal part of humanity in Get Out as well. I mean, the black characters are being used quite literally only for their bodies. And then in Nope, which is my favorite of the three, you know, we actually have real animals, right? So now this really all kind of comes to the fore. It's about how do we communicate with something other than us, radically other than us, but still not completely other than us. And I'm really interested to hear whether or not you think we can see not only a connection between these three films, but kind of the maturation of an idea. Yes, I definitely think there is. I was really thinking this day that we would talk about them. 
I mean, just to go into Nope a little bit, I agree, like Jason has written about it. And I think spectacle is one of the big themes. And I think it's Peel's own reflection on what it means to be a Black filmmaker who's engaged on some level with spectacle, like the Bordian idea of Mm -hmm. it, like the society, the spectacle that images have sort of replaced commodities as the fungibility that levels and destroys all autonomy and all use value or individual agency. And how much even with these politically themed films, you're still contributing. And obviously he makes a ton of money with these films, you know. But I really saw the animal and the common theme of having been made to be an animal as an oppressed Black person, how that creates an identification with that outside that is deep and rich and problematic. Like OJ's relation to Jean Jacket cannot fully be absorbed by the spectacle. It's something in excess of it. And that's why it's worth it to still tell this story. It cannot be fully absorbed, right? And that Jean Jacket is so beautiful and so alien and so unknowable that it's something just in excess. And I think that's really true in all the movies. Like in Us, Red moves kind of like a spider Mm -hmm. and they whistle the itsy bitsy spider comes up the spider. And Mm -hmm. there's this way in that she's identified with the animal as this thing that cannot be killed, right? That keeps coming up. And Chris comes to identify as the beast that he's called and that helps him survive. He takes the head of the mounted buck or whatever and uses it to destroy his oppressors, right? So there's this way in which not that people can ever know an animal or be that, but the fact that one has been identified with that and oppressed in a similar way to that creates an identity that can be revolutionary. And I think that still goes with reproductive labor in that, like Rick was saying, it's the first original accumulation. It's what's considered outside of capitalism. It's the remainder that has been naturalized and seen in line with animals. And so as much as doing that labor is still being tied to that outside, being tied to nature, it also has that kind of resurgent power, I think. I also think that in Nope, we finally come to see most explicitly that the animal or the alien in this case is not a monster Mm. to the extent that we see it as monstrous. It's a kind of not seeing our relationships with our repressed lives, with our social structural problems. And in as much as we just kind of turn away from those things and say, nope, not going to deal with that, (laughs) you know, too scary. (laughs) We're really missing the point and they're just going to destroy us. Yeah, it's made monstrous by the gaze. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's on us, right? Yeah, <laughs> for looking yeah, in this yeah. particular way. And for mistaking our relationships. Like Jupe thinks that he can know the other, you know, the Gordy ape, right. but it's really that his eyeline was blocked by the tablecloth, right? right? It's really that he maintained that respect of not looking that saved him, you know, but he mistakes that for an ability to master that alien force. Right. And I think one of the other things about Nope is that Jupe's misrecognition of what's going on. He thinks the alien creature is a spaceship. He thinks he has a deal with it. He gives it a horse and he gets a show. But in some sense, his mistake that the thing is a spaceship is the mistake that we're also making as the audience when we watch the film because it looks like what a spaceship looks like in other films. And I think one of the interesting things about the films in progression 
going from Get Out to Us to Nope, is the way in which the role of television as a framing device for how we make sense of the world becomes more and more central. Mm-hmm. Like in Get Out, there's a throwaway joke about the United Negro College Fund's slogan of mine is a terrible thing to waste because yeah. that's literally what's going to happen to Chris. In Us, there's the memory of Hands Across America as both an image and an idea of like everyone taking care of everyone that animates the rebellion. But then in Nope, you really get this whole thing about how everyone's reaction to what's happening around them is structured by what appears in television and movies and what doesn't appear, right? Jupe is struggling with the fact that he had this rise to fame. It was cut short by this tragedy. The tragedy makes more money than the fame he's trying to hold on to. And the family of OJ and Emerald are visible workers within Hollywood. No one remembers the name of the jockey. Everyone remembers the name of Moybridge and the image. So everyone is kind of wrestling with the sense that when we confront the world, we often confront the world through how the world has been represented back to us through television and movies. And and note quite specifically, that leads to someone's undoing. Mm. I love that scene when Stephen Yeun is called upon to tell the story about what happens. He doesn't tell the story about what happens. He tells a story about an SNL skit Mm -hmm. about what happened on Gordy's home. And in part because I don't think he can talk about what happened. But he uses the skit to narrate the story because to live in the modern world and this is something that Peel brought to him from the world of comedy. He recognizes how much we use films and TV to make sense of our lives to our detriment. The spectacle is going to chew us up and spit mm. us out. Yeah, I actually think it's really there in Get Out, too, because he's watching television when his mother's dying. And that's the original trauma. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's the only thing that comforts him and makes him not have to believe that what is happening is what is happening. And then that's echoed when he's thrown back to the sunken place. The way it's shown to us is that you see the world as if it's through a distant TV screen, right? Mm. So there's a way in which that spectacularity and inability to get out of Mm. these television narratives, I think, is really key from the beginning, too. I also think that OJ in Nope, who's perhaps the only character that we have in all three films that has learned to avert his eyes from the spectacle in mm. order to mm. see something true, even if what he sees is ugly or monstrous as well. One of the really interesting things about that character is the film takes great care to show how patient he has to be to learn that. And I should say for people who haven't seen Nope yet that it's a slow, quiet film. Yeah. And in a way that mirrors horse training. It's just a lot of waiting and negotiating, you know, with maybe a couple of spouts of battles and energy, but it's pretty slow work. And I think that OJ here is representing how difficult it is to not be distracted by the spectacle, but also how slow and painstaking the work of not doing that is. Yeah. And as much as when it becomes spectacle, there's all this horse galloping it does not have the pacing of the Spielberg mm. movies that it's referencing. Yeah. So it's both showing that spectacle and distancing itself from it, as you're saying, with the pacing. Beautifully so. And I love the design of Jean Jacket, yeah. the alien. We went to the aquarium recently and just saw the jellyfish and saw how carefully he's looking at all these animals that are just so, you can't believe they exist, but they actually do. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
our bartender decided that she needs to go out and see these three films. And she also realized the monsters are in her bar. (laughs) So she's issued last call. Before we go, though, I want to reiterate something Lee said all the way at the beginning, that she's in the last 48 hours of her 40s, which means her birthday is coming up. Now, it'll be passed by the time you hear this, but I think you could give her a wonderful Christmas present. And that present would be to sponsor us on Patreon. You could go to our Patreon page. There's not a level called Happy Birthday Lee, but you could find one that would be an appropriate gift to give Lee as she ends her 40s and embarks on the best part of her life. Her Patreon page is at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. Joe, I really want to thank you for coming on. This has been a really fun conversation and incredibly interesting. Yeah, Joe, this was great. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. It's awesome. Yeah, thank you. This is great. And since I have the highest kill count, I'm driving. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, guys. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> my